This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu's Books podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, the Hindu's China correspondent and your host for today. In this episode, we are joined by Isaac Stone Fish, the author of America Second: How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. A fascinating book that looks at China's influence, how it has grown, how Beijing wields it, and how America should respond while not compromising on its own values. In America Second, Isaac highlights the extent of Beijing's influence in America and how it cultivated powerful figures, from Henry Kissinger to the leading lights of Hollywood. Isaac is the founder and CEO of the research firm Strategy Risks. He's also a Washington Post Global Opinions contributing columnist. and formerly a foreign correspondent who reported from China for many years while this is a book that looks at chinese influence with a focus on china us relations there are plenty of takeaways for other countries that are dealing with china's rise including india which is also wrestling with some similar dilemmas for instance how should it deal with deep commercial dependencies on china or the growing footprint of chinese companies in the indian market or chinese apps and how can india respond effectively without censorship or compromising on its own values these are some of the issues we'll be discussing today isaac thank you so much for joining the hindus podcast thanks so much for having me so isaac we are speaking at a time when the 50 year anniversary of nixon's visit is on people's minds is being written about and many of the issues that your book talks about in some ways directly trace back to the whole engagement process that began then what's your sense of you know as this anniversary is marked how much do you think this whole notion of how america engages with china has changed and the assumption that you know engagement was this complete unalloyed good do you think that's really shifted in a big way i applaud what nixon and kissinger did in the 1970s with helping to bring china back into the world and i think they deserve some credit for dampening the excesses of the cultural revolution and allowing mao an off ramp and allowing deng away to reengage my problem with what kissinger did starts in 1982 when he founded his consulting company kissinger associates Now there's nothing wrong with someone going into business. It's a pretty well-trodden path. It's it's something that I myself do at, at at a different level. But I think the the real problem was that that drastically changed Kissinger's incentives. And starting from 1982, he was a businessman per, first and a policy guru second. But countless administrations, countless boardrooms. countless people countless dc intellectuals thought that he was still advocating for policies that were just beneficial to the united states while forgetting the ways that he was carrying beijing's water and the ways that he was helping himself earn a great deal of money with helping us companies do business in china right and kissinger of course is one of the many important central characters in your book and and in terms of how china chooses prominent individuals in different countries and kind of cultivates them and he was a perfect example of that and i think it will come as news to many people in india this whole side of kissinger that you bring about in terms of his commercial dealings his advisory roles with chinese companies and actually it's been a bit of a puzzle i think for many people in india as well how this person who was this unsentimental realist famous for being so 
tended to go completely sort of weak at the knees when it came to how he wrote about China. Kissinger, in his book, 2011 on China, describes Zhou Enlai, the premier under Mao, in such awestruck language. And he's used that tone with China so, so many times. And again, it's it's perfectly acceptable to be awestruck by brilliant geniuses in the China world. It's not when you're doing so in a way that's very advantageous for your own business career. Right. And I think it's also a question of transparency as well, right? In terms of he's still someone very revered, I would say, in the US. He's often on TV and interviewed. And do you think generally in terms of public perceptions of him, this whole side of his own sort of commercial interests and incentives, is that something that you think not many people are really aware of? I think it, it it's such a taboo conversation in DC. And it's true with Madeleine Albright. It was true with Brent Scowcroft. It was true with a lot of the US foreign policy luminaries. And it, it's true in Europe. And I think it's true, in, you know, and Anthony, you do know better than I would, but true to a degree in India as well, where you know, folks will be very successful in the geopolitical realm working for the government, and then they'll go and be consultants. And people try really hard not to talk about it. It was true with Tony Blinken, the current U.S. Secretary of State as well, who, you know, between his stints of government, was running a consulting firm with a former top defense official uh, called West Exec. And again, it's, it's okay to, they're not breaking laws, it's okay for them to be consultants, but it's not okay for us to just pretend that those don't have huge impacts on their decision making in and out of government. And you take us in detail through the WTO moment, and I think that's a related point where it was kind of the argument was, of course, presented as, you know, this rationale that commercial liberalization of China would lead to political liberalization. And that's something you heard a lot of U.S. officials say at the time. But as you also said, probably, as you say, it's something that happens in many countries, but in, but in the U.S., you probably have an extreme example of this revolving door of officials becoming former officials and consultants and then coming back into government. So how much of this, when you have this WTO moment, isn't it also the case where was that argument, in your view, something people really believed at the time? Or how much of you think was actually driven by, if I can put it bluntly, greed in terms of opening up the China market to U.S. companies in different sectors? It's, it's, it's a great question, Anath, and it's so hard to know how people are actually thinking and, and what they actually feel. And I think for senior folks in government, you tend to be able to have a lot of different ideas in your mind. So I think you can believe it to a degree and then recognize that it's also self-serving, but try to ignore that nagging voice in your head. I spoke to one former official, Stapleton Roy, who later went on to work for Kissinger Associates, and he talked about this as something used to sell policy as opposed to something used to justify policy. And I talked to another official who worked for Cheney, and he said this idea of doing well by doing good oh, yes, we're, we're going to trade more with China. That's going to be good for China. It's going to be good for us, was in the air that they breathed. It, it was just such a pervasive policy and a pervasive idea. And uh, coming, of course, to 2016, Isaac, I think that a lot, this whole notion of coziness among elites and this whole idea of China ripping America off, which, of course, then-President Donald Trump was so public about, 
But then, as your book tells us, the most remarkable thing is that while he was publicly speaking about China taking advantage of America, that many of the people that he was surrounded by, both in the White House as well as in, in his own sort of personal business circle, were pretty much the very same people who were dealing with China in many ways and, and making money off of it. It was such a hypocritical shame because you know, while his language was too extreme, and while I, I certainly castigate the way that he put unfair intention on Chinese Americans, some of his points were, were quite accurate. And then when he came into office, it was a lot of the same corruption that we had seen in previous administrations, arguably a lot worse. Uh, there, you know, there's there's certain dealings with the Treasury Secretary and the Commerce Secretary that were you know, quite <laughs> quite unfortunate. And I do applaud those, you know, more in the rank and file of government under Trump and under Biden, who have really tried to start solving these problems. And I, I think the conversation in D.C. and in world capitals, the world over has really started to shift about what Beijing is doing. You know, we're, we're seeing some of that in India. We're seeing it probably most advanced in Australia. And we're seeing a lot of helpful signs on that in, in London as well. Right. I do want to come to that and this change that we've seen and what Xi Jinping may or might not have had to do with it. Uh, but one thing that I wanted to speak to you about, the chapter of your book that I liked the most was the one on Hollywood, because it's something that all of us in India are, of course, so familiar with. And, and, and the, way the, the way China figures in Hollywood is quite fascinating. And it, it's, I mean, you, you have so many examples of scripts being changed, of how, you know, plots have to be sort of, uh, have to now pass the Beijing test. What made you interested in, 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 in focusing so much on Hollywood as an example of how uh, China's footprint is making itself felt. I came from going to the movies in Chongqing in 2017, I think it was, and seeing Wolf Warrior 2, which is this painfully jingoistic Chinese Rambo-like movie about how a Chinese special forces operative goes and saves Africa from greedy Westerners. It's a very silly movie. In the beginning of the movie, there's a scene where this special forces guy saves a martyr's tomb from rapacious Chinese real estate developers. And I realized that by having Chinese bad guys in the film, this film was more critical about China and the CCP than any big Hollywood film that's come out in a decade. It, it was really, really amazing to see that. And so I, I traced it and I looked and I looked and I looked and I, and I could not find anything that was critical. It, it was very, very striking. I think the, gosh, announced, what's that movie called? The, the, the uh, Jack Nicholson movie that was, The Departed, the one, the one that was uh, made after internal, uh, Infernal Affairs, that Hong Kong film. That has a short scene with Chinese bad guys. And I, I think that was the last movie in Hollywood that really did that. And I'd actually be curious, I don't, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but does Bollywood make films that are in any way critical of China or that have Chinese people with any sort of complexity in them? We did have a movie that uh, recently that was set against the backdrop of the 1962 war starring Salman Khan, who's a, one of the big Bollywood stars, but the movie didn't do very well. It, uh, and there was, I think, a Chinese actress in it as well. Uh, but it didn't get much recognition. But uh, I think there is a 
India's movie industry is slightly different from Hollywood because so much of its revenues come from India. And there are exceptions with, for instance, Amir Khan, his movies now make more money in China than they do in India, but he generally focuses on Indian themes. So he doesn't really have that kind of dilemma that, that Hollywood faces. But when did, uh, when did the shift actually happen? Because, I mean, all of us would remember, for instance, Seven Years in Tibet uh, and, and movies like that. So uh, when would you sort of pinpoint the sort of time period when, when this actually became a trend where you just wouldn't have anything bad about China and the plots? Well, that was where it all began, 1997, with Seven Years in Tibet, Kundun, and Red Corner. And it was a gradual process. It, it certainly didn't happen overnight. But over the late 1990s, and especially the mid-2000s, Beijing taught Hollywood studios how to create that voice in their head that says, is this going to offend Beijing? Should I do this movie? What are the consequences? Created inside them this very powerful censorship box, censorship apparatus. And throughout the years, as China's economy grew, as Beijing grew more repressive under Xi Jinping, as studios became more financially dependent on the Chinese box office, anything that was too controversial, that was outside of that norm, really started to disappear. And, and I, I think it's a very sad thing because it's also creates very unrealistic, I would even say racist portrayals of Chinese people in US movies, because it's not just bad to have a negative portrayal of a certain ethnic group. If you just have positive portrayals, you're really lampooning them. You're, you're not painting them as real people. And I, I think that's very shameful. There is, of course, the commercial angle and the fact that, as you mentioned, China has this quota of how many foreign films it allows in a year. And I think Bollywood has found co-productions where you have Chinese investors and you co-produce with Chinese companies, a very lucrative way of, of, of going into China. And just the, the, as an example, before India's relations with China sort of took a hit with the border crisis, India and China were actually working on co-productions. And, and one movie came out in 2017 called Kung Fu Yoga which was like the biggest co-production and I had Jackie Chan as well as uh, Disha Patani. I watched that movie in Beijing. And just to give our listeners sort of an idea of how these co-productions can be influenced, there's actually a, a dialogue in the film where Disha Patani, I think she's an archaeologist and they're treasure hunting. And she actually says that I think this project can be something we can work on as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. That was a line said in the movie. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so this is an example of how it works. So can you tell us a little bit about co-productions and how they've in, and how they have sort of become a way for Hollywood to get the China market? So co-productions allow for Hollywood studios to avert the quota system and have more access to Chinese talent and have a more favorable regulatory treatment in China, but they also bring a lot more of the written and unwritten Chinese rules about censorship, about areas that they can focus on. And they also keep perverting the incentives so that studios think more and more it's important for them to self-censor. It's important for them to stay away from certain sensitive areas. And the issue is is not just that 
these studios or these people making these particular movies are afraid that that movie will be banned or the studio's movies will be banned. But these studios mostly are part of these large conglomerates that have a lot of other business lines in China. Uh, Disney is perhaps the most market example. They have two theme parks in China, you know, one in Hong Kong, one in Shanghai. The one in Shanghai is, is roughly 55% controlled by the party through Chinese SOE developers. And it's just a lot of leverage that Beijing has over these companies. You do have this very striking episode of how the head of Disney actually went to meet Zhu Rongji and had pretty much had to do a kind of self-criticism, as it, as it were. It was, it was. And this, this was a very early example. This was in the late 90s where, you know, he said, oh, I'd never heard of this film. And, you know, this film's an embarrassment to our friends. And, you know, it, it's very striking that the anecdote came from a book that Jurongji published. And, you know, when you allow the Chinese side to write the history, that's the history that gets repeated in, in books like mine. And, you know, we, we reached out to Disney and to I think it was Eisner, who was the, the CEO at the time, reached out to a spokesperson to see if they wanted to comment, if they wanted to dispute that. And, you know, they, they didn't. And it was just an embarrassing incident in, in U.S.-China relations and in, in Disney. Now, on the subject of influence, Isaac, I think the, the role of the United Front of the Communist Party is something that I think people in India tend to focus on a lot. There's a lot of mystery about what the United Front is, how it works. And it's something that, of course, you speak about in, in detail in your book. So can you just tell us, I mean, obviously, without giving away the entire story of it, and I encourage people to find out for themselves by reading your book, can you just give us a sense of what makes it so unique and in, in a way difficult for people in other countries to understand because you just don't have a similar kind of organization in the US or in India or anywhere else? The United Front is so complicated in part because it's both a government department and an idea. And the idea is that we have to build up a united front with non-communist forces to strengthen our friends and weaken our enemies. It's a lot about this idea of who is with the party and who is against the party, who is with the people and who is against the people. And it came out of a Leninist idea where he wanted to work with British dock workers to overthrow global imperialism. And even though they weren't communists, he could still form a united front with them. So the United Front domestically in China does a lot of different things, but internationally, it seeks out friends, it seeks out people who might be sympathetic to what the party wants, and it tries to subvert those who are against that aim. And making it even more complicated, the United Front rarely talks about what it does. It's very, very secretive. Chinese officials will often deny that it's doing what you say it's doing. It's almost like a, a religion where, whose practitioners try to deny that they're doing what they're doing. It's maddeningly complicated, but incredibly important to focus on. And, you know, finally, just coming to India and how India is dealing with similar questions, uh, we sort of had this a huge shift going from a situation where India was completely open to Chinese investment to the point where some of India's biggest e-commerce companies, including, uh, you know, financial payment systems, some that you might think were sensitive, all had big Chinese investment. And the rationale then was that an Alibaba or a Tencent was different from a state-owned enterprise in terms of how it handles data and the like. And your book sort of explains why, even if a company may be a private Chinese company, it, it still is very different from what you would think of as a private company somewhere else. But how would you uh, sort of suggest 
policymakers deal with the situation where you go from in India, for example, we've gone from being completely open to now banning outright WeChat, TikTok, more than 200 apps, which some might say is, is censorship, even though it's been cited as being for national security. So when you sort of have these two extremes, and you, from your own experience of how America is trying to deal with this issue, and you caution against alarmism, you caution against sort of tarring everyone with the same brush. So can you just share with us some thoughts of finding this kind of uh, via media of, of dealing with this, but not compromising on, on your own principles? Indian policymakers are starting to understand the very real possibility of a war between China and India. And perhaps it'll be limited skirmish over Arunachal Pradesh and contested territories, or perhaps it'll be much more extensive. And I think Indian policymakers need to understand that Chinese businesses, whether they like and often they don't like it, you know, will have to act as sleeper agents in the event of a war. And that Indian businesses that have very high exposure to China will be pressured to act for Beijing's interests, often in counterpoint to New Delhi's interests in the time of a conflict. So I think part of the lesson is, is to regulators, but part of it is also to, to business people. I think there's a very strong economic argument to reduce your exposure to China or to at least be very aware of what your exposure is and to have a good contingency plan in place for if tensions get much worse to realize that going to be terrible for your bottom line to remain so exposed. So there's an economic argument as well. And there is also the related and final question, Isaac, in terms of we now have the situation where you have Chinese media outlets that are very active on, uh, say, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and they're accessing, they're putting out the message to hundreds of thousands of people in India. And we saw that during the Galwan Valley clash as well, where you had people affiliated to Chinese media putting out stuff on Twitter which is, of course, a platform that's banned in in China. So how do you deal with the situation where there's this asymmetry, where you want to remain open, but the openness is kind of being exploited in some ways? I think you are open about that asymmetry. And I think one of India's great strengths over China is its openness and its raucous debate. And there are certain downsides to that. But I, I do feel like on balance, that's a far better strategy for India than to try to emulate China and to try to emulate Chinese systems of control. So I, I think it's similar to the university debate in the United States. You know, our, our universities are fantastic because they're so open to outside influence. And India needs to preserve that openness in order for it to prevail over China, as, as opposed to closing down in order to push back against China. Right. On that note, there's so much more to talk about on the question of Chinese influence, but I would encourage everyone to check out the book, Isaac Stonefish, author of America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Great to chat. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as InFocus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 